0: You have a copy of God's Word, the Bible. Please turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 5. John is the fourth of the Gospel accounts, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. And we'll be reading this morning from John 5, verses 30 through 47. The Gospel of John. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Please follow along as I read. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is, of course, the Lord Jesus speaking. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together once more. God, I pray that as the word is preached now, you would condescend to put your words in my mouth, and that you would not allow me to put my words in your mouth, but that this morning we would hear from you, Father. Speak to us through your word. Fulfill your promise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of the Bible's message is what we call the gospel, uh, translated literally... Good news. Christians will often speak of the gospel message. Well, what is the gospel? Uh, it's probably true that there are few questions uh, that are more important uh, for you to have a correct answer to, to really understand what is the good news, what is the gospel of Christianity. And there's a number of ways. We could answer that question. I mean, the gospel is just one thing, but there's a lot of ways we might describe the gospel. Uh, I especially appreciate the answer that J.I. Packer gives. Uh, he says the gospel is a message about four things, really, four pieces to the Christian gospel. First of all, the gospel is a message about God, it's a message about God. But the God who created the world, who created the universe, who created us, who gave us life and breath and a living soul, and who is the sovereign over all creation, Uh, the the God uh, to whom we will all give an account, the creator, sovereign, Lord God of all. It's a message about God. Secondly, the gospel is a message about sin. Uh, The gospel tells us that all of us are born naturally in a state of sin. All of us are naturally sinners and rebels against God. We don't natively love God or want to obey Him or want to follow His commands or live in a relationship with Him. Rather, we're all rebels. We're all sinners. The gospel makes this clear. It's a message about God who is creator, sovereign, holy, perfect overall, that we are sinners who are rebels against God and who are accountable to Him. Thirdly, the gospel is a message about Christ, a message about Christ, the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man. And now we're getting very near to the very heart of the gospel message. The gospel is the good news about what Christ has accomplished through His incarnation, that is His coming into the world as flesh, through His death on the cross as payment for sin, and through his resurrection from the dead, all of which was to provide a way of salvation for sinners. So you could tell in those first two parts of Packer's definition, the the message about God, the message about sin, there's a big gap between us and God, and Christ enters in to bridge that gap, to provide a way for sinners like us to be forgiven, to be saved, and to be made right with God. And then Packer includes a very important fourth part to the gospel message, and that is that the gospel is a summons to faith and repentance. The gospel is a message about God, a message about sin, a message about Christ, and it is a summons, a call to faith and repentance and a life of following after Jesus. And the promise is this, to all those who repent of sin, turn of sin, confess their sins, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ they will have the gift of eternal life forever in paradise with God Himself. And it's basically the gospel message. And Christians believe that people are saved, made right with God, inherit eternal life by believing that message and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, my fear is that there are lots of people in churches today who don't really understand that message, and therefore they don't, they can't really believe it because they don't understand it, and therefore they can't really be saved because they don't understand this most important gospel message. Rather, there are many in churches today, maybe even in the Bible Belt and in our community it might be possible, maybe even here this morning, there are many who believe Christianity is principally, essentially, primarily about attending church, obeying the teachings of the church, serving in the church's ministries and programs, maybe even observing the ordinances like the Lord's Supper, abstaining from the more heinous sins and vices, and generally walking as straight a line as you can. I I do think for some that is very near to the heart of what Christianity is for them, What I'm describing is what I would call religious formalism, religious formalism. I'm deliberately not using the word religion. Religion is a very good thing, at least the right kind of religion, okay? It's become popular to bash religion in our day and age. I don't do that. Religion is wonderful if it's the right kind of religion. I'm talking about religious formalism, and I would draw the sharpest of distinctions between religious formalism and the biblical gospel. Religious formalism says that I am made right with God by what I do, by observing religious rituals, practices. The gospel, on the other hand, teaches that I am made right with God through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who died on the cross for my sins. Religious formalism says that I am maintained in God's good favor by the proper performance of my religious duties. The gospel says, I am maintained in God's good favor only by His grace, by the ongoing intercession of the Lord Jesus on my behalf, and by His commitment to save me to the uttermost. Religious formalism says, I can secure and preserve the right status with God through my own merit. The gospel says, you can never secure God's favor. It must be secured for you through what Christ does in your place. Religious formalism promotes rote legalism. The gospel promotes true biblical holiness that is informed and empowered by the gospel and is well-pleasing to God. Religious formalism can never save a person. The biblical gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This morning, I want you to hang on to that distinction I'm making here. It's a very basic, very fundamental distinction. It's review for many of you, but hold on to that distinction between religious formalism on the one hand, which is not biblical Christianity, and the biblical gospel which is the very essence of Christianity. It's gonna come up later on in our message this morning. In our text, in John 5, 30 through 47, we're breaking back into a conversation that Jesus is having with uh, some of the Jews of his day, and we're gonna see this morning, really from from verse 30 onward, this conversation, this interaction gets increasingly confrontational. Uh, Jesus is gonna be the only one talking in these verses, And it gets increasingly confrontational as the text unfolds. The content of the discussion centers around who Jesus is. These Jews are engaging Him on that subject, and Jesus is talking about who He is as the Son of God and as the Christ, the foretold Messiah. And in the verses we're covering this morning, Jesus is going to marshal a number of witnesses to testify to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, and is indeed the Christ. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to go from calling witnesses to His defense to turning the equation onto these Jews and actually calling a prosecutor into the room to accuse these Jews. So keep an eye out for when that equation switches later on in the text. Just two questions I want to ask this morning of the text. That'll be our outline this morning. Two questions. The first question is this, who are the witnesses? to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who are the witnesses? He brings up four in this text. We wanna consider each one. Who are the witnesses? Consider with me, each one in turn. First of all, the Father, God the Father, is the first witness marshaled uh, to bear witness and testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the first witness, the Father. Please look at verse 31. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. And I look down at verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus is saying he's God's own son. He said earlier on in chapter 5, my father is working till now and I am working. He's saying I uphold the universe by the word of my power just like my father does, and that's what ignites this controversy with these Jews, because they understand Jesus to be claiming to be God Himself. He makes God to be His Father, which would mean as the Son of God, He's equal with God. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. Let me call some witnesses to the stand to make this case for you, and one of them is the Father. And it's legitimate to ask the question, how is it that the Father bears witness to the Son? Uh, Jesus doesn't exactly tell us. He doesn't give a specific example. And I don't think he has one specific thing in mind, actually. Rather, it's a general statement about the Father bearing witness to the Son. And the Father does so in in manifold ways. Let me just list a few ways that the Father bears witness to the divinity of Christ, the Sonship of Christ. First of all, the Father bore witness to the Son through the Old Testament Scriptures, through predictive prophecies about Christ. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And in the Word of God, God told us of this one who is to come, pointed ahead to this Messianic figure and Jesus comes in fulfillment of all those prophecies. And every time you see Jesus fulfilling a prophecy, it's like God putting a stamp of approval on Jesus. Second way the Father bears witness to the Son is through the works the Father has given the Son to do. That He's obviously blessing. He's doing things that only God can do. And when Jesus says, you know, to a paralytic man earlier in John 5, get up and walk, it works. Why? Because he's God, and the Father is bearing witness through these works that he is God. You might remember the words of Nicodemus in John 3, when he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, no one can do these works unless God were with him. Even the Jews of Jesus' day could recognize that, that in some way God was with Jesus, bearing witness to who he was. A third way that the Father bears witness to the Son is in drawing men and women to him. Jesus will say in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And as we see men and women being drawn to Jesus, this is a seal to the truth that he is the Son of God. The Father is drawing men and women to him. A fourth way, if you wanted to point to one specific event where the Father bears witness to the Son, you might think of Jesus' baptism. It's there at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus and remains on him. And they hear the words, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All of these are ways in which I think the Father bears witness to the Son. Now a second witness that Jesus calls to his identity as the Son of God, and it is John the Baptist. Please look at verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus says, I don't need to receive the testimony from man. I'm saying this for your sake so that you would be saved. I sent John for you. I don't need John at all. You need John John the Baptist was, was, was me accommodating you by sending a, a prophet to prepare the way for the Lord that you would be ready for my coming, because I want you to be saved. The Gospels teach this. Jesus wanted the Jews to be saved. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as the mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. You would not come, he says. Jesus says of John in our text, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, if you've been with us in this series, maybe you can point to passages in the first five chapters where John the Baptist gives his witness. I'll just read a couple of them. John 1, 6-8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. What did that witness look like? About 30 verses later, John 1, verse 32 through 34. And John bore witness, and here's what he said. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is Son of God. Thus John the Baptist bears his witness, and Jesus says, you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. He was a burning and shining lamp. And I think there's, there's a hint of an appeal there, like why would you stop? You were willing for a time to listen to Him. There was something about what He was doing that you found attractive and winsome, and you were drawn to it. Why did you stop? As the ministry of John the Baptist failed, I think it's a a hint of an appeal to these Jews. All right, now the third witness. We've seen that the Father bears witness to the Son. John the Baptist has borne witness. Now third, we have Jesus' miraculous works. Jesus' miraculous works bear witness to his identity. We see this in verse 36. Verse 36. Jesus says, but the testimony I have is greater than John. If you didn't find John good enough, I have a greater testimony than John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Works like turning water into wine. Works like healing a royal official's son with a word. Works like walking right up to a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years and telling him to take up his bed and walk. Works like this testify to the identity of Jesus Christ. And now, fourthly and finally, the fourth witness under this main heading, who are the witnesses? The fourth witness is the scriptures, scriptures. and I want to rest here a little bit longer than the first three points. Look with me at verse 39. Jesus says to these Jews, you search the scriptures, Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And now look on a little bit at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, and I think he means the old covenant, summarize in the first 5 books of the bible that moses wrote if you believed moses jesus says you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words that last verse verse 47 if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words i think jesus is drawing an equivalence there moses writings my words they're equal In other words, you don't believe me, Jesus is saying, because you didn't believe me. He says, you don't accept my words now because you didn't accept my words then. You don't believe the written word of God, like in the first five books of Moses. How on earth are you going to believe the word made flesh? Notice he's not saying you know, you believe Moses. Now just believe in me, the next prophet in line. Or just read Moses a little more carefully and look at the fine print, and you might find me there. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, you don't believe Moses. Like, you don't have Moses right. He's making an argument, and you're not listening to him, because if you had him right, then you'd recognize that he was bearing witness to me. Strong language Jesus uses. You don't believe his writings. How will you believe my words? Think of how in your face offensive that must have been to these Jews who have set their hope on Moses, Jesus says. "Like, What are you talking about? Of course we believe Moses' writings. We have texts from Moses tied around our neck in little phylacteries and we walk around the town with them. We have his words written up on our walls at home. We go to the synagogue, and there we recite words of the Torah. What do you mean we don't believe in Moses? It's really in-your-face stuff, Jesus is saying. And that's why I said this must have been confrontational to these Jews. But Jesus says, of course, you don't believe Moses' writings. The proof of whether or not you believe and understand the Old Testament Scriptures is whether or not you understand that they point Jesus. That's the argument that Jesus is making. He's, he's supplying a hermeneutical principle. It's his Bible interpretation 101. You want to know the Old Testament, you have to know they point to me. Otherwise, you don't know the Old Testament at all. That's his argument. And so he says, don't make a pretense of calling God your Father when you can't even discern his likeness in me, his own Son. And don't make a pretense of loving the Bible When you're completely blind to the Bible's message, it's all pointing to Christ. If I could sort of use an illustration to try to get this across, that that if I told you um, I love the German language, I've studied the German language, I speak German fluently, and then you came to me and started speaking to me in German, and I plainly don't understand a word that you're saying, you'd say, you're a fraud. You don't understand what I'm saying. You said you knew German. I'm speaking German to you and you don't have a clue what I'm saying. It's a little bit like what Jesus is saying. You think you know the Bible? You think you know the Word of God? I, the Word made flesh, am standing here. And if you knew the Word of God, you certainly would recognize the Word made flesh. You say you know Moses? He's been talking about me for years. Why don't you recognize me? You say you know the Father. The Son is standing right before you. I bear his likeness. Why don't you recognize me? And essentially, Jesus is calling these Jews frauds. You don't know the Bible. Don't make a pretense of believing Moses. Don't make a pretense of knowing the Scriptures and really having eternal life in the Bible. If you knew God, if you knew Moses, if you knew the Scriptures, you would know me. Because the Scriptures, Jesus says in verse 39, bear witness about me. The Old Testament is all about the coming of Christ. He's the center of the Old Testament's message. The Old Testament told of the coming seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head and would extinguish sin and death from the world. The Old Testament told of the coming seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations and there would be this great ingathering of all the peoples of the world and they would come and be blessed through him. The Old Testament told of the coming prophet who was like Moses and who would have God's words in his mouth and everything that he commanded God's people were to respond to. The Old Testament told of of a sacrificial system by which atonement could be secured whereby lambs were killed year after year after year, all pointing ahead to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Old Testament foretold of David and more than that, His promised seed, who would rule on His Father's throne forever and execute justice and righteousness in the world. The Old Testament foretold of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, who would come and would execute dominion over the entire world. The prophet spoke of the Anointed One, the Coming One, the Christ, the Messiah, who would come and accomplish redemption and salvation for His people. The prophets told of the suffering servant in passages like Isaiah 53 and so many others. The Old Testament everywhere is pointing to the coming of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He's all over the place, and more than that, without Him, the Old Testament has no point. You realize that, right? You read your Old Testament, and you don't understand that it's pointing ahead to Jesus Christ, God's own Son, it has no point. A Christless Old Testament gets us nowhere. It's all promise and no fulfillment. It's all type, no anti-type. It's like a, holding in a sneeze and, and never getting to actually let it out. I don't mean to be trite about this, but it, the whole Old Testament is groaning and, and, and expecting and full of, of something that is to come. And in Jesus, you have the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's promises. Everything that was forward-looking, we have in Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. And it must be ours as well. And it's that understanding he's commending to these Jews. Let's ask specifically about Moses, because Moses is the issue in our text. Uh, Jesus claims that Moses wrote of him, told of him. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe my words, okay? Well, where does Moses talk about Jesus, okay? I want to share a quote with you from a commentary on the Gospel of John, on this passage in particular by Don Carson, and then apply that quote to help us find where Christ is in Moses. I find this quote very helpful. It's a little technical, but I think it's helpful. How do we find Christ in the Old Testament? Here's this quote from D.A. Carson. Four things he's going to commend. By predictive prophecy, by type, that is like a symbol or something that is to represent a greater fulfillment, by predictive prophecy, by type, by revelatory event, and by anticipatory statute, what we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ. Predictive prophecy, type, revelatory event, anticipatory statute… Let me show you how each of those works in Moses. How about a predictive prophecy? Does Moses have any predictive prophecies about the coming of Jesus? Yes. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and following, where he promises that a prophet like Moses will come from among your brothers, and God's words will be in his mouth, and you will listen to him. It's a predictive prophecy. How about by type or shadow or symbol? Symbol. The book of Hebrews, for example, shows us how Christ fulfills all kinds of types. For example, the great high priest in the Old Testament. The the, the office of high priest was a type of the greater fulfillment of that office to come, who is Jesus Christ, who is said to be our great high priest. And he doesn't have to appear year after year like the high priests of old to offer sacrifices for his people. He appears once for all and offers himself as atonement for sin How about by revelatory event, the Passover, does that anticipate the coming of Christ? You have all the needed elements there. You have the threat of judgment, you have the provision of a blood substitute, and you have deliverance through that blood substitute. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like what we're going to celebrate this morning in a few minutes. That sounds like the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain for our sins, who is said to be our Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians, who appears in the book of Revelation as a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then fourthly, and finally, by anticipatory statute, think of that command to slaughter a lamb year after year to make atonement for sins. I've said this before, but I'm convinced there's no way a believing Jew is looking at this arrangement and is thinking, yeah, we'll just do this forever, and we'll be fine. He had to have known this is a sign of something to come. It's anticipating some larger fulfillment this is a temporary provision where we're slaughtering this lamb year after year. We fulfill this law now, but it, it must find some greater fulfillment. And, of course, we know it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ who fulfills the law, who himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Christ is all over the Old Testament. He's all over the books of Moses. So these are the witnesses of John excuse me, of Jesus in John 5. They are the Father, they are John the Baptist, Christ's miraculous works, and the Scriptures themselves, which point to Jesus. Now the second question, and we'll spend less time here. We've seen who the witnesses are, who are bearing witness testifying to who Jesus is. The question I want to ask secondly is, why don't the Jews listen to them? As Jesus marshals witness after witness, why don't they listen to them? Why do they fail to heed the witnesses, and why do they reject Jesus? Now listen, as I read, beginning in verse 37, the repeated indictments Jesus gives against these Jews. It's a remarkably confrontational passage. I've read this chapter dozens of times in my life, and I've never quite noticed until this week just how in your face it is. Jesus is grabbing them by the collar and confronting them. Listen to these indictments, verse 37. Verse 37. The Father's voice you have never heard, and his form you have never seen. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Verse 44, how can you believe When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. and verse 45, maybe the biggest one in our text, Jesus says, Moses, who they love so much, on whom they set their hope, is their accuser. Indictment after indictment after. You don't believe. You don't receive. You don't have the love of God within you. You don't have life. Moses will stand up and accuse you. It's very confrontational. So let me ask my question again. Why? Why is it that the Jews fail to receive Jesus and fail to heed these witnesses? Now, there's lots of reasons we could give. There's lots of reasons why people don't believe Jesus and embrace Jesus. How about one big one we considered earlier in this series, John 3? This is the judgment. That light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And all those who do evil do not come to the light, lest their work should be exposed. The problem with the human heart, the reason why people don't believe Jesus Christ, is because we natively hate God and love sin. That's how I was born into the world. That's how you were born into the world. We're haters of God and lovers of self and sin. We're haters of light and lovers of darkness. And the reason I don't believe in Jesus is because he threatens my darkness. And it means I'm gonna to have to give up my works which are evil that I do in the dark. I mean, I'd have to come to the light and be exposed and embrace him and change the way that I live. That's why people reject Christ. The human heart is not neutral. Don't kid yourself. You're not a blank slate. The human heart comes into the world with a predisposition. We have an appetite for darkness, and we hate light. Now, that is a reason that's true across the board for all sorts of people who don't believe in Jesus. But I want to ask specifically, like, with these Jews. I know that's true of these Jews. That's true of everybody. But but what is it about them in particular that Jesus wants to highlight? And I think that Jesus gives two reasons in particular why they don't believe Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. These Jews don't embrace Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God because Jesus threatens two things. First of all, he threatens their glory. He threatens their glory. And I'm getting this from verse 44. How can you believe? Like, it's not possible. How how even can you? can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Like you have an attachment to something else that's presenting an obstacle to you believing in me. How can you believe when you're receiving glory from one another and won't receive the glory that comes from God? The Jews were very interested in glory, glory going and coming to themselves and between themselves from one another. Tell me I'm somebody. Give me my due and my place of prominence. Keep the glory coming to me. This was said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. See, they wanted glory. Now, listen, Their religious formalism was certain to secure the glory that came from others. How did these Jews get their position? How did they get their glory? How did they get their place of prominence? It was through their exactness in commitment to religious forms. Showing up to church, showing up to synagogues, obeying Torah was the means of securing their own glory. But also it should be noted of these Jews, Jesus acknowledges, it's not like they were unwilling to receive a Messiah, a certain type of Messiah. So verse 43 of our text, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Which I understand to mean, in other words, that if you come like us, Stroke our glory out just like us so we can become an echo chamber of glory and approve and prop up one another. That sounds good to me. And if Messiah were to come as a king, an earthly king, and overthrow the Romans and give power to the Jews, and hey, maybe we'll get some share of the glory. That's all good to us, and we could be close to worldly power and jockey for position in his court and improve our position through our Messiah. If that's how you come, in your own name with worldly pomp and power, I could get on board with that agenda. That's what these Jews believe. But Jesus comes in his Father's name, not his own. He comes to do His Father's will, not His own, and He comes to go to the cross in obedience to His Father, and He comes to call people out of their places of prominence and into His service, and He calls them to take up their cross and humbly serve others, and He has a gospel that is received by faith, not by works, and that means there's no boasting, and all of a sudden, the glory equation is turned upside down. The glory that the Jews so enjoy and that tastes so good is threatened by Jesus' message. And if their glory, their prominence, their place, their standing is threatened, how can they believe him? Something they hold as more precious is in the way. Now, are we so different from these Jews? Listen, there's a way, there's a way church can be manipulated entirely to your advantage. There are lots of people, lots of people, vying for position and power and standing and influence in the church. And the church is often the setting in which we can prop ourselves up and gain influence and gain control over others and get glory from other people and be approved of and and coddled and stroked and approved of. A lot of people use church that way. May that never be true of us that we seek glory from one another and not receive the glory that comes from God. But there's a second thing that Jesus threatens, second reason why these Jews don't believe in him, and that is that he threatens their very hope for eternal life. He threatens their very hope for eternal life. Look at verse 39 again. You search the Scriptures... Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. Then in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Those are sad words. They're the saddest words in this text. You love Moses, and it's on him You have set your hope, which I think means that the Jews were approaching the Scriptures and approaching the law of Moses the wrong way. Rather than pointing to Christ, I believe these Jews believed that they could establish their righteousness through stringent obedience to the Mosaic law and exactness in obedience to the Scriptures. That's what I think is going on here, which is so sad. So sad. These people went to church. They searched the Scriptures. These are big money words. They they thought they found eternal life. They set their hope on Moses. They had hope. Misplaced hope. Can you imagine that? You who set your hope on Jesus Christ and his blood and righteousness, what it could mean to set your hope on Moses? How pathetic But this is what these Jews were doing, you've set your hope on a man, you've set your hope on Moses, you've set yourself on religious formalism and keeping the Torah and following all the various prescriptions in the Old Covenant. You think you have eternal life, but it's bankrupt, you don't have it. Your hope is a fraud, it's a sham. You need the eternal life and the hope that comes from God. It reminds you of Paul's words in Romans 10, verse 2. For I bear Israel witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. It's like you tried so hard. But it's so much work. And you thought you had the prize. But it was a sham. And Jesus says, no, you have it all wrong. Moses is going to stand up on the last day and he's gonna be your accuser. He's gonna stand up and he say, what were you doing? What were you thinking? What were you playing at? Did you think that you could be made right by obedience to the law? Where did I say that? I never told you to rest your hope on me. I told you about a prophet who was going to come and he was gonna have God's words in his mouth and you were supposed to listen to him. Why would you set your hope on me? Why would you set your hope on religious formalism? Why would you think you could have eternal life in the Torah? I never said that. Moses will stand up and be their accuser. These Jews are looking at their law keeping, their religious piety, their religious devotion to grant them eternal life. And Jesus says, you have it all wrong. Jesus says, all those who believe in me will have eternal life salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, everlasting hope comes through me, and it is embraced by faith alone. Now, I tried to ask myself this week as I was studying this passage, why is that message so threatening to these Jews? Like, why would that not be gloriously wonderful? Here you are working, you're striving, you've got the list of all the hundreds of commandments, and... You go into the synagogue and you're performing these sacrifices and year after year it's all very tedious and then Jesus is no 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 if you believe in me you'll have eternal life you turn from your sins you believe in me Jesus the Christ the son of God you will have everlasting life why does that threaten these Jews and why don't they receive that message with joy and here's what I've concluded, the best I can come up with. I think these Jews understand that if salvation is by faith in Christ and not by my own religious formalism, then I have nothing to boast about. And I have to admit that I'm a sinner in need of grace and all of a sudden I'm on par with everyone else. Maybe like The woman at the well of Samaria. Five husbands, live and boyfriend. I'm on par with her. The same gospel that saves her, saves me. And I have nothing to boast about now because it's not based on my works and my merit. It's based on the grace of God. So these Jews spend their lives distinguishing themselves through their advancement in religion. And Jesus just levels it. Just levels it. None of that stuff earns you brownie points with God. Doesn't give you an inch of status and favor and position with him. That's only achieved through Jesus Christ, and it's through him that we have eternal life. And for these Jews, to embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life means they have to give up the glory they get from others. And they have to give up their positions in the synagogue and in the prominent places. And for some of them, they will lose their livelihood and they'll be kicked out of the synagogue. And their power and standing will be taken from them. All because they have abandoned their religious formalism for the gospel. Just like our brother Sa'ad. All the rituals in his bankrupt faith that he followed from his youth believes the gospel. Whereas all that stuff, the boasting, the confidence before God and man, the positions of power and influence, the esteem and glory you get from others, that's all theirs by virtue of setting their hope in Moses. Let's see who can obey the law the best. And they say, I'd rather have my hope set on Moses than on God's own son. My security, my standing, my salvation, my eternal life, my hope is bound up in my commitment to Moses. Jesus threatens that, that which is most precious to them, that thing upon which hangs their whole security and self-righteousness. Now, in conclusion, as I draw to a close and we come before the Lord's table, I've argued from this text that one of the leading causes of unbelief among the Jews was their misunderstanding of the Bible that led to their satisfaction in religious formalism. They were content to set their hope on Moses. They were content to live out these forms week after week. I beg you, don't make the same mistake. American so-called Christianity is full of people who have set their hope on Moses, who have set their hope on religious formalism who have set their hope on institutions, who have set their hope on old-time religion, who have set their hope on Sunday school, who have set their hope on choirs and vacation Bible school and short-term mission trips, who have set their hope on preachers, who have set their hope on movements, and they confuse all of that with trusting God and believing His gospel. That's a fraud religion. That's a fraud gospel. Religious formalism will never save a soul. So let me just ask you, my friend, sort of a test question. When you sin, not in a big way, it's a garden variety sin. When you sin, and you repent, you make it right. With what knowledge do you comfort yourself? You sinned, you regret it, say sorry, fix what was wrong, then with what knowledge do you comfort yourself? Well, I haven't done anything all that bad. I haven't cheated on my spouse. Hey, I've always been there for my kids, not like my mom, my dad. I've been there for them. Hey, at least I'm, I'm not like my, my brother and his family. You should see them. I'm not like my sister. She's got some issues. At least I'm not like other men and other women. It's not all that bad. My friend, that thought with which you comfort yourself is the very thing in which you hope. The thought with which you comfort yourself is that thing in which you hope Is it in your doing, your working, your church-going? Or do you say, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My friend, religious formalism is not the gospel. Walking the straight church-going line is not the gospel. Saying Hail Marys is not the gospel. Memorizing the catechism is not the gospel. Always being there when the lights are on and the doors are open is not the gospel. It won't get you anywhere. Giving 20% of your money is not the gospel. Avoiding the vices of others is not the gospel. I'm begging you, do the heart work now. Make no assumptions upon what have you set your hope. You die on the way home, as any one of us might, and you stand before Christ tonight in what are you Hoping. Can you say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I won't set my hope on Moses, I won't set my hope on church going. I won't set my hope on my wherewithal and ability to get my act together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And what better time to make this pledge than at the Lord's Supper, that I have eternal life by no other means than the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who is my Savior and my only plea before a just and holy God. Let's pray. Father, there are so many native obstacles in our hearts that work against your grace in our lives. Demolish them all, we pray, that your word might find a resting place in our hearts where it might thrive and grow and take shape. Deliver us from spiritual blindness. Deliver us from hard hearts. Deliver us from our idols. Deliver us from a devotion to things that are not pleasing to you and things that will disappoint us and destroy us. And please, Lord, move in us that our hope might be set on your Son, the Lord Jesus. We confess before you there is hope in nothing else. Do not let us be like those who would set their hope on our doing, on our obedience to the law on our religious formalism, but Lord, may you give to each one here today hope in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ to save us from sins. As we celebrate that now, please come and be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a moment to meditate on God's word.